The Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, I'll be chatting with Brent Clark, CEO of the Australian Industry and Defence Network Limited, also known as Aiden, and we'll be chatting about Defence's recently announced moratorium on uniformed or APS staff going directly into above-the-line roles within industry. G'day, Brent. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you back on. It's been a while since uh, you were last with us. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully that wasn't because of something I said. <laughs> no, I think it was, uh, you were giving us a very good overview about Aiden and everything, but can you give us like the 30, 60 second summary of who Aiden is and uh, what your role is with them? Yeah, absolutely. So Aiden is uh, the largest industry defence association, primarily looking after the small to medium enterprise community. Um, as you introduced me, I'm the chief executive officer of the organisation. Uh, and really, from our perspective, what do we do? Uh, we provide education, training, support, networking opportunities, and probably more importantly uh, these days, uh, advocacy up into government and defence. Yeah, that's very topical, especially these days, as you mentioned. In my intro there, I mentioned above the line. There is, in defence, above the line and below the line. I'm sure most people listening will know what that means, but for those who don't, can you explain the difference between above and below the line? Just what is this mythical line? Yeah, it's it's a great question, um, and and I think it's one of those things, or one of those topics where people can easily get confused. Uh, there appears to be multiple definitions of above and below the line. Um, I think the way I would describe it first, below the line would be a company that provides a an acquisition to defence, a tank, an airplane, boots, um, glasses, things like that. Um, and they go through a tender process and it's a, it's a competitive tender process and it's for a requirement that defence has. And effectively, they're managed and looked after and they're treated like a supplier in every sense of the word. When we go to above the line, and it, and it can be confusing above the line, but essentially an above the line contractor would be an individual that does something on behalf of defence. So let's say defence has a deficiency in marine engineering and uh, they need somebody that uh, is a competent marine, qualified engineer to oversee policy and ensure that Navy's meeting its obligations. You could have an above the line contractor doing that work. And hopefully, hopefully, not too many of your listeners will be outraged with my um, with my description. <laughs> yeah, I've I've often looked at it like an above the line contractor is like a contracted APS, um, Australian public servant, in that you're doing work, you've signed the NDAs, and you're working like ninety percent like an APS staff member. And uh, yeah, whereas below the line, as you said, it's it's the Lockheed Martins, it's the Tullises, it's the Morants, and a lot of a lot of small businesses working at defence's direction. One hundred percent. I mean, at one hundred percent, I agree with that. So this recent moratorium just come into being, and it says that if you wear a uniform or you're a member of the APS, and you leave, you cannot immediately come back into defence as an above-the-line contractor. Now, I believe it's for one year. Is that correct? Correct. The moratorium 
is for 12 months. And I think it's important to, to note that a company could employ an APS or ADF person in their organisation. What they can't do is use them for work above the line. So you could hire me. Uh, however, you would not be allowed to bring me back in an above-the-line capacity to defence. You could task me to do work elsewhere within the organisation. Yeah, and we see that quite often, um, especially senior members going off and taking senior roles with a defence contractor. Uh, not uncommon. Uh, senior Navy folks working with Tullus and sustainment, um, especially for their contracts, their, uh, their knowledge and things like that. But yes, it's. I see it more impacting the downer MSPs, the um, the smaller companies that are supplying, dare I say, body shopping people into above the line roles. Yeah, and and in defence of the 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 mandate or the moratorium, uh, really what defences are trying to achieve is pretty much what you just said—that body shopping activity where an an ADF member or an APS member is recruited by a company and leaves the Defence Force on Friday and then turns up on the Monday sitting at the same chair, the same desk, getting paid twice the amount of money that the that, that could, should be and could be a role for uh, APS or, or, or ADF to do. And I don't think anybody by and large would dispute that Defence needs to protect its assets and to be able to do Defence work itself. But we can talk more about the monitorium and, and, and how the unintended consequences of that on uh, on the community. Yeah, indeed. And I think that's a, it's a good segue now to the whole thing of why does this above-the-line role exist? And I believe it has to do with hiring freezes, limitations on numbers of APS, things like that. They Defence had to have people to do stuff or they would fall behind. So they couldn't recruit more APS, so they went out and got contractors. Well, Grant, I think you've uh, pretty much hit the nail on the head with that. Um, so I've seen over many years, many, many years now, where you've had systematic hiring freezes, particularly in CASG, before that the DMO, before that the DAO, et cetera. Um, you know, they've had headcount numbers that they can't e e exceed. The issue, of course, is the work still needs to be done. Uh, you can't not do the work. Otherwise, you have situations where you have, I uh, think from memory, Menorah, when she lost her main power and was drifting casually towards North Head and Sydney, uh, they were able to avert a tragedy, fortunately. But the consequence of that was Navy had really lost its engineering capability because of these kinds of things. Um, now, it's more complex than that, but but that would be how I would sum that up. Now, from from our perspective, uh, defence or the APS can only react to the government mandate they're given. So, so this is not a, a slight on defence, a slight on the APS at all. The fact is if government turns around and says you can only have 10,000 people and that's it and you have work for 15,000 people, you either work your people 33% harder or you fill it with what you are allowed to do and that is to get above-the-line contractors. Until we get uh, a freeze, I've seen the pendulum swing a couple of times back and forth like that. Uh, too many contractors, and so people come into the APS, and then it swings back the other way, and we get more contractors. But, but yes, I can see where where this is 
as you were saying, the person who finishes Friday comes back Monday. And the question has to be asked is, why is that happening? You mentioned twice the pay. And speaking to a number of people off the record in uniform and in APS roles, and they're finding that there is less and less benefit for being in uniform or in APS as compared to being out in the rest of the world and engineers being attracted by aerospace, mining, things like that. It's This really gets to the core that defence may not be such a great place to work in the eyes of many. Yeah, look, uh, I guess we're in a philosophical zone right now. Why does somebody choose a career in one area and not in the other? I think I think there's multiple things that are going on in society which change that. When I finished school, I wanted to join the Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family had all been in the military, so off I went, joined the Navy and, and absolutely loved it. So I'm sure today um, that connection between that family connection and that desire to go into the ADF may not be as strong as it once was. Equally, um, we all know the job market is incredibly competitive. Mm. So what do we offer to our our serving men and women and to our our serving APS staff that actually makes it attractive? So when I say what are we offering our serving ADF personnel and our serving APS personnel, what what is the incentive to keep them? What what do they get out of that? Interesting work, uh, job satisfaction, job security, pay, remuneration, whatever you want to whatever however you want to express that. It all adds up to a package and and then people decide. It's a very competitive environment. It's a very competitive environment. And I think that um, it's difficult for defence and it's difficult for the APS to necessarily keep up with the ever-changing environment. I'll use the example of offshore oil and gas. So that industry is going to find its workforce. If it can't find its workforce, it will just increase the wages until it finds its workforce. It's as simple as that. Defence and the APS don't have that luxury. It's very difficult to suddenly increase their wages to, to take that into account. But what we do hope is that people join the Defence Force and the APS, not just for money, but because they also ultimately want to serve their country. Now, of course, Defence serve their country a certain way. I think it's also important to acknowledge that the APS serve their country a certain way. But if we don't give them the incentive, if we don't give them uh, this, the, 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 a good job, an interesting job, a worthwhile job to do, it can become disheartening. So therefore, you become quite um, attracted to popping out because, you know what, if I'm going to do a job that I don't like but someone's going to pay me more, <laughs> why wouldn't I do that? Yep, and I've met a number of current and former uh, uniform staff who have they've become jaded with the posting cycle and tomorrow you could be anywhere and that's very hard when you've got a family. Um, I'm an Air Force brat myself, uh, saw a lot of that happening and jumping around mostly when I was very young, but I, I know a friend of mine, he had a reasonable rank, but he wasn't really handling the postings and going places and never knowing how soon until you go somewhere. And so he exited and took a role in industry, not above the line, but below the line. And yeah, it, it, he's a lot happier now. It's it's quite an interesting environment. When you're young, that dynamic posting environment can be quite wonderful and get a chance to see the world. But once you've got a family and it 
progresses further, it gets very difficult, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely it does. And the system needs to have some inbuilt flexibility. Uh, you know, I, I would contend that if we had a colonel in the army that has a, a certain specialisation or a certain level of knowledge, they don't want to transfer from town A to town B. We should be able to accommodate the fact that they don't want to do that because we need to retain their their knowledge and their abilities, right? Um, now, of course, you can't have a situation where nobody gets posted. <laughs> uh, otherwise, you, you you kind of run run into trouble. Yeah. But but there should be enough enough flexibility in the system to allow for those kind of things. But but ultimately, I'm not. I, I do understand the posting cycle, and certainly when I was in the navy, you know, we posted on a very regular basis. A bit like you said, very happy to do that because I enjoyed it. Um, obviously, as the kids came along, that became less attractive, a, a, a thing to do. That's okay. Um, I got more senior and less and less moving, <laughs> from a better <laughs> description. But I think I think we still fundamentally need to look at the the environment we're living in today, and an an eighteen year old school graduate. When they walk out the front door, they can look around them and there are multiple job opportunities for them, most of them paying well. There isn't enough people to do the work that needs to be done. So how do you attract that person? Now, I can't tell the ADF how to attract people. I can't tell the APS how to attract people. But... We need a system in place where people view going into the APS as an exciting, worthwhile career. People view going into the ADF as an exciting, worthwhile career. If we don't, your retention and recruitment problems are just going to get worse and worse and worse. Yep. And that, I mean, speaking from the media side, uh, it is quite frustrating to try and get some of the good stories out that would help show people just how exciting it can be and how interesting and great for your career it can be to be in uniform and to have some of these APS roles. I mean, there are some which are more back back office, but there's many which you working in the APS, I'm told, is quite good in terms of you're supporting the people on the front line. You're not making those decisions about sending them to the front line, but you are making sure that should they get in harm's way, they've got the best equipment, they've got the best support, things like that. And that kind of environment can balance out some of the other negatives in terms of, well, the super's just the same as commercial as being out in the civil world and the salary and et cetera, et cetera. But there's that that added benefit. And we are seeing people still going into defence, but clearly recruitment is down compared to how it's been. Look, it is. It is. And it is going to be an ongoing problem. Um, I'm sure your listeners, most of them will be people from defence companies. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners right now will understand when I say finding good quality staff to fill vacancies is incredibly difficult. Equally, when I talk to associates from other industry sectors, they would say the same thing. You know, we have a unemployment. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a little bit behind, but I think unemployment is about 3.5, 3.6% in this country. If you accept the fact that, generally speaking, anything below about 5% is considered roughly to be full employment, uh, what, we're, what we are in effect saying that everybody in Australia that wants a job has a job. It's as simple as that. So you need. You need innovative ways to fix that problem. 
Now, maybe we have people that aren't being targeted or directed into the right industries. So do we go to our university sector as an example and say that you need to increase the number of engineers you take by a factor of 10, 20, 30%, whatever that number is, to produce more engineers? Um, is that equally what we say about trades to ensure that we're creating the, the trade skills that we need? So it's not just about university graduates. It's, it is also about specialist tradespeople. It is about technicians. And technicians are, is one area where we always seem to forget. They're the group in the middle. Um, and we, we've got shortages there. Now, can we bring people in from overseas? We can. Although we must recognise that our friends, the US, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, etc., they have shortages as well. So, so the way to fix this must be through more education, more training, opening up more opportunities for these people to create a greater and bigger pool for them to, to be drawn from. But we also may have to look at, and I, and I don't want to be dictating to the US State Department, but we, we must also have to look at countries which we may not traditionally have thought about putting into, or people from countries that we may not have traditionally put into defence roles and seeing what we can do to ensure that they can be given appropriate security clearances, even though they're from a country that we might not be entirely comfortable with. Mm. Yeah, the defence clearance requirement, which means you need to be an Australian citizen, that does further restrict the pool, doesn't it? Well, it does. It does. It does. And there's no simple solution to this. And, of course, as you, I'm sure, are very well aware, we have the beast that is AUKUS coming. And uh, I think when that descends upon us, um, which, quite frankly, I, I think it's a great outcome for Australia, and I don't think you'd find too many people that would disagree with that, um, and the opportunities that will be created will be immense. And obviously, from an Aiden perspective, we're, we're, we would be seeking to ensure government ensures that Australian mm. industry is well represented in those opportunities. Uh, that but, one little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a reality here, Graham, in the fact that we are going to have to comply with US security requirements, and we cannot get away from that. Mm, um, the dreaded ITAR. Correct, correct. One of the pillars has to be that we can protect US information. We have to be able to do that. So we're going to have to work with the US to, to work our way through this issue. I'm certain that the US government will not want us working through this solution by saying to a huge amount of US citizens, come to Australia, it's all sunshine and kangaroos, um, <laughs> and we'll pay, you, we'll pay you a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, and good luck with that too, because the Americans are starting to pay more as well. But so, just before stepping back, you you mentioned uh, a number of initiatives required to address, especially on the training, both at university, at technical, at trades, etc. Are you seeing any signs that the government is stepping in and defence is stepping in to make that happen? Are you seeing indications that uh, headcounts for APS and uniform? I mean, we've had the, the statement from the previous government about increasing the number of uniforms and defence. Is that being all followed through? Is the same thing happening with APS? Look, a great question. Um, um, the simple reality is you, you're going to have a lag with this. You have to have a lag. 
you know, we have come from a position where we've had shortages. We come from a position where we haven't been producing the throughput of trades, technicians and, and graduates. We just, we just have not been producing them. So to be able to get those numbers or the appropriate numbers in is going to take us a while. Uh, Defence, obviously, through this monitorium, is seeing it as an opportunity to slow down the exit. They won't stop the exit, but mm. at least slow the exit down so that they can actually recruit and bring people into backfill. But it is a whole government e- effort required here. Um, I don't see this as – I personally don't see this as a defence issue or an APS issue. The only people – the only people – that can fix this issue are the government. And they can only fix this issue with correct policies, with a commitment for funding. And I know everybody wants more money, but if government's not willing to fund universities, TAFEs, the trades, et cetera, then they're not going to create the volume of workers they need. And therefore, Defence and the APS and a whole bunch of your listeners and mining companies and every you know, cyber companies and everybody else in Australia are going to continue to fight for a de- decreasing pool of people. And the worst outcome there is for the Australian taxpayer because all that happens is we have a spiral of wage increases. Mm. It's supply and demand. Yep, yep. And one could say that we are at the end of – 20 years or so of successive governments of all natures not supporting industry within Australia, not supporting TAFEs and universities, leading to fewer apprentices, fewer interns, which has led to this scarcity of technical people, of engineers, of everything, because people have just gone overseas. Look, I I really agree with that. I think that's a very insightful comment you just made, Grant. Um, yeah, you know, from my perspective, it, 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 and it is both persuasions of government. Uh, if we look at our manufacturing base in this country, it is dreadful. Um, yeah, you know, this country has survived on exporting raw materials, uh, and that has, to a certain extent, given us a false a false hope in terms of our economy. Yeah, you know, everybody wants what we have so we can sell, but we should should absolutely have been looking at manufacturing in this country, we should have been looking at how we develop our own sovereign industrial base and not pay other countries to develop their sovereign industrial base. Because why do you not have people going to work in a shipyard? Why do you not have people joining the army? They, they don't join the army because they have a better offer. Or they don't go and work in Australian industry, or they don't take a job as a as a sheet metal fabricator, because there's no genuine belief of long term viability of the industry. Because if government allows everything to be outsourced, i.e., sent offshore, there is no viability, there is no security in the job. So if I'm a parent, of which I am, I'm not going to get my children to go off and become a tradesperson because I'll be worried about what happens in 10 years. We will look for other industries or other jobs for them to get into. And I know government 
you know, if they're listening, <laughs> would turn around and say, oh, Brent, you're being uh, unfair on us and we've got lots of policies and it was the last government's problem and don't blame us. Um, it has been successive governments. It has been successive governments. And we have allowed the, the, the manufacturing base, the professional services base, all of those industries to get into a situation where they are dangerously vulnerable at a time when our strategic circumstances, so we are told, are the most extreme we've had in since World War II. It has to be rectified. And government can't blame the previous government. Government can't do any of that. Government, I mean, they can blame them all they want. But at the end of the day, what they have to do is ensure that the, the, they put the measures in place, the policy directives in place, the funding in place to build up the strategic sovereign industrial base. If they don't do that, they are failing as a government. Mm. And like I said, are you seeing any signs that this is happening? Early days. It's very early days. I think there's, uh, with the greatest of respect, there's a lot of rhetoric flowing around. Uh, there's a lot of we will do this flowing around. I'm, I'm glad they will do something. That's tomorrow. The question is, what are we doing today? Mm. And we've seen the first of them, which is the knee-jerk moratorium, which doesn't solve the problem, the core problem, but does address a small symptom. And hopefully we don't see too many of those. Well, look, it does, Grant. It absolutely – and I can – and whilst we might – you know, certainly have some issues with the with with the fact that it was brought in so quickly, and 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 there certainly wasn't, uh, in our view, enough consultation, particularly around the impact on the SME community. I can fully appreciate why Defence has put a moratorium in. They they need to somehow get their skill set up, and if you can't recruit, you've got to retain, and if you're struggling to retain because of the economic environment that you're living in. The only tool you've got is a moratorium. Yeah. It's easy to put a moratorium in then to solve the root cause, which, as you said, all lead back to time. They need time to improve support for staff who are already working there. They need time to and funds to be able to improve the package, the, the whole of package that people are working under. Not necessarily more more salary, but more everything, the whole whole of life and the work-life balance scenarios. And they also need time to improve how they handle those who were previously in, the veterans. So, yeah, lots to do. There, look, there is lots to do, but Australia is a first world country. We have excellent academic institutions. We produce some of the best technical and tradespeople in the world. We have the capacity and the intellectual capability to solve this problem what we need is the political will. And I know I keep hammering back to the government and I'm not here to have government be upset with you, Grant. They can <laughs> be upset with me. Um, but the simple reality is they can't shirk this responsibility. They cannot do that. And when we say we don't have enough people, my earlier point, when we look at, look at mums and dads and they're, they're talking to their kids about what industries to go into, they're picking industries where they, they think their children will have long-term careers. Now, we want people to have a long-term career in shipyards. 
we want people to have a long-term career in the Defence Force. We want people to have long-term careers in the APS. That's what we want to have happen. But if there's a fear that work won't happen or there'll be reductions or whatever happens, they will pick industries that are growth industries and they know that they will have 50 years of viable work. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And meanwhile, on the moratorium front, as you mentioned, impacts on SMEs, is that mostly the ones that, as I use the phrase, body shopping into above the line, or is it impacting multiple other SMEs? Uh, that's a great question. I think uh, there was an unintended consequence with the monitorium. So very, very few SMEs are body shoppers. Mm. Right? And I think we all I think we all understand the, the terminology body shopper. We don't need a definition for that. Your your average SME provides a skilled service into um, your major service providers. So mm. so you don't a lot of you don't get very many SMEs that recruit a whole bunch of people, then knock on the front door of defence and say, here, I've got five people mm. to, to put back in. That tends to be the, the purvey of the, the, the big four account, you know, companies, you know, companies like uh, PwC, for example, mm-hmm. um, where, where that is part of their, their business model. And, and, and that's fine. That's, that's their business model. Uh, SMEs don't tend to do that. SMEs primarily tend to have uh, lots of veterans. Mm. They're a safe place for veterans to go to. They tend to supply specialist skills back into defence. So mm. your behaviours from your average SME are not body shopping. They're providing a capability. And, and I think the monitorium, and I, and I think, and, I, and we would hope that uh, with some dialogue that defence would understand that the monitorium needs to not necessarily be so focused on the above-the-line SME community but more what we'll call, and I'll happily call it, the body shopping community that um, is what defence doesn't really want to be interacting with. Yeah, I, th- I think defence thinks that they're just going to get all that kind of capability below the line uh, and they forget that that capability is coming, as you said, through SMEs into the, the large team Novas, the team Downers and all the other MSPs. Yeah, so I see what you're saying in terms of that above-the-line issue, that the skills of the veterans, they've got to go somewhere for a year before they can come back and do what we would like them to do in those roles. Yeah, yeah. So we, we you know, I think I've said this before, we are, we are absolutely not opposed to defence trying to retain its people um, to do work. We, we fully accept the fact that, that the Department of Defence, or in fact any government department, should be a smart department, should have the capability and capacity to do the work it needs to do. We, we fully understand that. Um, we obviously are concerned about the monitorium. We're concerned about the monitorium in terms of the impact on the SME community. Um, now, if, 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 if some of the larger companies can no longer recruit staff, as I said earlier, large companies always get their workforce. Um, so if you can't recruit out of defence, you turn left and see the SME community, so you recruit out of them. Mm. And, and certainly we would urge defence, and, and I believe, genuinely believe that, that defence's intentions are good, so we would urge defence to ensure that there is an ability to prevent the SME community from being pillaged by those organisations. Yeah, so like a second order effect. 
Correct. Correct. Well, that's an interesting one. We've uh, dis- we've discussed a large part of what's going on here with defence staffing, recruiting, retention, and what its impacts are on industry. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap it up? Look, Grant, no, um, <clears throat> I'm good. Thank you very much for, for obviously inviting me on and um, uh, always, always happy to support you. I think you provide a great service. Well, thanks, Brent. Appreciate that. And of course, thanks to everyone who's been listening to this one. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from this show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa Media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.